Well, I invite you to join me in the Holy Scriptures. Make your way, please, to Luke chapter 24, and then take a quick left to the end of Luke chapter 23. Luke 24 is, of course, the great resurrection chapter. We're going to study the burial this morning, the burial of Jesus Christ. You know, without the burial of Jesus Christ, there, there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ. First time in Scripture, Paul is recorded as preaching to the Gentiles. He says in Acts chapter 13, they took Jesus down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. So you have both the burial, he laid him in a tomb, and the resurrection. Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul gives a brief praise of the gospel, he says in chapter 15, for I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Sad, but today Christians have lost the importance of burial. Burial honors the body that God made. Cremation does not. Scripture says we go dust to dust. In other words, we're created out of the dust and we end in dust. We're not created out of ash and go to ash. Christians have always buried over the centuries. We honor the fact that Jesus redeems not merely our souls, but also our bodies. That's why we read our passage this morning. Join me, please, in Luke 23, verse 50. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. Jesus' body is referred to here in this small text six times, once in verse 52, once in verse 50, excuse me, four times in verse 53, uh, often with the word like it, it was referring to the body. Uh, it's also referred to in verse 55 and even in verse 56, where it is all about honoring his body. Now, about 10 years ago, I uh, visited the African country of Malawi. I got out into the bush country uh, got to see where life is exactly like what it was hundreds of years ago. Uh, Malawi is a poor nation next to Zambia. Um, most who live in that country never in their lives visit a doctor even once. Um, the tribal chiefs, at least where I went, uh, had multiple wives uh, who all walk around barefoot. And most mix Christianity with a religion that tries to manipulate God into giving them health and wealth. You know what I'm talking about. I, I went there to teach in a seminary in the capital city of Lalongwa, um, and I got to do my favorite thing, and that is to teach in churches. One pastor whose house I stayed at 
shared a conversation that he had had only a few days earlier. Ten men, all Malawians, all in their 30s, approached him out of the blue. They wanted, it turned out, to leave their church, which had abandoned the gospel, and they wanted to join his church. They had one question for this man, and one question only. The question was this, if we come to your church, who will attend our burial? Because if they left their existing church, the people and their friends in it would not come to their funeral or burial. So they were asking, will your people and will your church leaders come when we die? These men lived in a world of honor and shame, not money and looks. They needed to know, would this church live by Malawi's fallen worldly values? And would they therefore be shamed in their deaths? Or would this church live by the biblical values that are reflected there in the culture of proper honor and shame? These past few months, we have been studying texts that are wrapped and enveloped in the concept of honor and shame. But because we don't come from an honor and shame culture like, say, Middle Easterners do and most peoples of the world do, we don't always catch what's actually going on in the text. A man or a woman from Central Africa might better understand Christ's humiliations than than you and I, and even somebody who has all kinds of academic training like myself. For sure, uh, they would be seeing the humiliations of Jesus Christ that he's been going through uh, as much better than, than we probably would. And especially, they would see them as intentional, not like we might, which would be accidental. Oh, also he was shamed. No, that was the actual intent of what was happening. This past week, from the perspective of our text, we've been looking, we've been seeing uh, what's been going on in that week before the crucifixion of Christ. The chief priests, the elders, the scribes were really working hard to shame Jesus Christ. They wanted to shame him in the temple. Do you remember we looked at this extensively over the weeks? They were debating him in front of thousands of people uh, with trick, uh, twisted questions. Uh, they wanted to use his answers to those questions against him. They wanted, therefore, to be able to arrest him, put him in jail. Instead, Jesus, seeing their hearts, knowing what they were up to, humiliated them every time in front of the people until they finally retreated to their homes, sucking their sanctified thumbs. And then, remember, came Judas and uh, Judas was of the inner circle of Jesus, and he handed Jesus over to the soldiers. He led the soldiers to Jesus on the garden near the Garden of Gethsemane. And from there, the shaming only increased. He was arrested in front of his friends. He was taken away with his hands bound. Uh, they were, began smiting him, hitting him. They led him into three Jewish trials where he was railroaded into guilty charges. He had done nothing wrong, but they put him in there anyways. And then they handed him over to the Romans in order to execute him. The Romans would do that. So then they took the 
time of three more trials, also filled with all kinds of false evidence, and they got him convicted. He was whipped. After that, he was scourged in front of screaming crowds calling for his death, and he was paraded before the crowds on his way to the cross and mocked by those rejoicing at his downfall. But all of that was merely the precursor, merely the warm-up in the bullpen. The final degradation came next, the cross. The most shame any person could receive in the ancient world was a crucifixion. It's why they crucified men on the thoroughfares going into the cities so that people going in and out would be obligated to see the person being crucified or persons being crucified. One second century Jew said to a a Christian in mocking, the so-called Christ of yours was dishonorable and without glory, so much so that the last curse contained in the law of God fell on him for he was crucified. So now where we're at in the text, Jesus is dead. He is hanging lifeless on a cross. His human degradation is complete. The Lamb of God has borne the worst humanity could throw at him. But now in the passage before us today, we are privileged to read about how Jesus' shame is now over. The cross has completed its saving purpose and will now save all kinds of people until the Lord's second coming. Millions will be saved. The arc of human history is irretrievably altered to that which is glorious and that which is good. And now, with all of that, he's still hanging on the cross. It's now time for Jesus to begin being honored. There are two events in our text this morning, verse 50 through 56. The first event is that it describes a rich man who risks everything in order to honor Jesus' body. And then the second one is godly women risk their defilement in order to honor Jesus' body. Everything and every one of the past few chapters has been so dishonorable to Jesus, including even the disciples. And now with Jesus' body dead and hanging on the cross, and now having died and having already taken the thief on the cross to paradise, it all changes. Join me in verse 50, please. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man, verse 52, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, initially, Josephus, excuse me, Joseph, presents in this text a conundrum. Um, Jesus' burial is, is, uh, is going to come under the caretaking, the patronage of this man, uh, Joseph, uh, who, according to verse 50, is at the end there good and righteous. But... We also learn that he participates in wickedness in high places. It says there in the middle of verse 50, he was a member of the council. That's the ruling body of the men of Israel. 
That's the Sanhedrin who we've been reading about in the past few chapters who have been doing everything illegal, shameful, awful against Jesus Christ. So he's a member of that council. The Sanhedrin was a group of rulers over Israel who were kind of like our three branches of government rolled into one. Very powerful. And then there's this. According to Matthew's gospel, we learn that uh, this man... Joseph was also a secret disciple of Jesus. And we also learn, uh, excuse me, Gospel of John, Gospel of Matthew, we learn that Joseph, Joseph was rich. He was rich. So we got a rich man. We've got a man who's now a secret disciple of Jesus Christ, but he's secret because he fears man. He fears, he fears the Jews. By detail also, it says in verse 51 that he was from the city of Arimathea, likely the city of Ram, about 20 miles northwest of, of Jerusalem. I've been there. And we also learn, by the way, nowadays it's a completely Palestinian city. Uh, we learn um, two important uh, components of him. He wasn't like all the others in verse 51. He had not consented to their plan and action. So that's really good concerning Jesus. Uh, so that would tell you that most likely he recently became a secret disciple. If he had been a, a long-time disciple of Jesus, he would not have been able to stay within the Sanhedrin. And number two, he also there is says at the end of the verse, waiting for the kingdom of God. He not, that doesn't mean he's waiting to die so he can go to heaven, because you don't wait for the kingdom of God by dying. But he's waiting for the kingdom of God to come to earth. And because of all that, Joseph is an upright man who will not follow powerful men into sin. His character results in him making a decision, a decision that is going to determine the rest of his life. Look at verse 52. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now that's honor. And Pilate knew it. By doing so, Joseph was risking sending the wrong message. Letting a a man roam crucified, get buried in a rich man's tomb was never in Rome's interest. Because it conferred honor on the man. It declared that man's life therefore righteous And in Israel, to Israelites, it meant if you got buried in such a tomb, you were worthy of the resurrection. Exactly the opposite of everything Rome wanted to communicate through a crucifixion. Even today, people are around who hate granting honor to Jesus Christ in this way. Former Roman Catholic priest John Dominic Crisson argues that Jesus was not buried, but rather his body was torn from the cross, thrown in a ditch and eaten by dogs. That's why they couldn't find it. Marcus Borg, retired professor from Oregon State University, taught before that Jesus was just dumped in an open pit before before Joseph ever got there, if Joseph ever got there, unless that's just a made-up story, according to Marcus Borg. Um... We hear those kind of stories that, oh, Jesus was dumped in a pit and he was eaten by dogs or, or something else like that. And we hear that and, and we go rightly ballistic. But that would have been the majority 
understanding in the first century. What happened to Jesus? Nobody's going to believe of the world that this man rose from the dead. Nobody's going to believe the disciples stole the body away from a bunch of Roman soldiers. They're not going to believe that. Um, the reason they would believe he was eaten by dogs or the reason they would believe that he was just thrown in a, in a, in a ditch, just in an open pit, eaten by creepy little crawly things, therefore he disappeared, was because it was always Roman policy to treat the body of a crucified man with no honor. So Jesus' humiliation is going to the end because here is a is going to end because here is a man of status in Israel asking Pilate to give this man Jesus an honorable burial he had to be very careful if he was going to do that he couldn't demand it even though he was wealthy and important in the country now that would have been foolishness you can't just ask the governor for to give a criminal a a man he regards a criminal, an honorable burial. And besides that, Jesus' body belonged to the Roman Empire. It belongs to them. You can't just ask for it. They would have preferred, according to standard Roman practice of that time, to leave Jesus on the cross. That way birds could come along and pick at it. Or crawling insects could be climbing up him and crawling inside of him. But Joseph, compelled by his love for the Lord, goes public with that love. And as a result, Joseph begins a downward descent. So important for those of you who are considering becoming Christians. So important to understand this. First thing he would have had to do is go into Pilate's residence, his house. Pilate was done with official duties for the day by around three o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and here then is a godly Jew entering into a Gentile house and doing it of all days on a high holiday, Passover. That meant that he got defiled. More than that, he went into Pilate's house. He humbled himself before this Gentile and the text says he asked for the body in verse 52. The Greek word for ask is iteo, which is the word used for when an a, a inferior asks of a superior. And uh, Mark's gospel includes this little phrase that Joseph, quote, gathered up his courage right at that moment because everything was about to change. Pilate easily could have taken offense, thinking that Joseph of Arimathea, by asking for the body of Jesus, was actually shaming him, was calling his question into judgment. Um, the idea that if Pilate was concerned that the people or his own soldiers or anybody would see allowing Joseph of Arimathea to be one of those who takes his body down from the cross could easily be viewed as calling Pilate's judgment into question. So the risk to Joseph was imminent. It was also social, as it is for everyone who follows Christ and receives Christ's forgiveness for their sin. You see, it worked like this. Once word got out that Joseph had done this, 
he would be seen, first of all, he was at a very public place. Uh, he would fall from the elite Jewish society of which he was a part. Uh, the way that would work itself out most prominently would be Saturday or their, sun, their Sabbath day in their synagogue. According to John chapter 9, in the story of the man born blind, when Jesus healed him, the Sanhedrin had already made a ruling, quote, that if anyone confessed Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Uh, to be put out of the synagogue for a Jew, that was, that was to be kicked out of Jewish society, Jewish culture, uh, Jewish religious life. It was to join the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And, and for sure, Joseph would be kicked out of the Sanhedrin. After all, he was doing what he could to try to reverse the Sanhedrin's decision. And therefore, he would be bringing in both of those instances shame upon him and his family. And, and you know, nobody was telling him, nobody was encouraging him to go ahead, Joseph, honor the body of Jesus. Nobody was, was forcing him. He's instead what's spoken of in verse 50. He was a good and righteous man. Good men do good. Wicked men do wickedness. Do you want to know who's good and who's wicked in this world? Evaluate their deeds. It isn't all that hard. And, and after all of this, verse 53, the text says, he took it down, talking about the body, and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. Now, this would tell you, if you had lived at that time, the risk to Joseph of Arimathea was also financial. Matthew's gospel says that the grave that he was put into is Joseph of Arimathea's own grave, and it's very, very expensive. The Jews did not dig holes into the ground for a dead person like we do. For very rich and very important persons, a small hole was caved out of rock on a hillside. A Jewish oral tradition in the Mishnah specified the burial vault was to be about six feet by nine feet with shelves for bodies. After one year, the flesh was decomposed and gone. All that was left was bones. The bones would be removed, put in a box called an ossuary, and moved over to the family burial plot for permanent burial. For that year, typically for such favored persons, a square large stone was placed in front of the tomb to keep like impurities and any animals out. But for a few persons, rich enough, they would have an enormous stone cut, cut to be round. It was made for that one-year tomb. It was the, a mark of a, the wealthiest of society's elites. Uh, this large round stone was then rolled in front of the tomb, dropped into a stone trough that had been cut out, so it sat in it. It would take multiple people to roll away such a stone. Thankfully, Jesus had such a great tomb. Thanks to Joseph of Arimathea, he gave Jesus and gave him honor and gave him such a tomb that was the very highest of social distinction. All of that took enormous cost, but it all gave honor to Jesus. 
It also fulfilled scripture, right? Isaiah 53, 9 predicts 700 years before the time of Christ, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was a rich man with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. You had a absolutely holy, righteous man treated like the very worst of human beings. And then if you want to see how honorable he was, watch what God did with him right afterward through a rich man. And it wasn't just that either. There was even expensive clothing in the situation. Verse 53 mentions linen, a linen cloth. That would be the finest of, of cloths, the finest of cloths used for burial. This would be the ultimate one-time purchase, uh, one-use purchase, because it was used only for a burial. And then once a dead body touches it, you never would use it ever again. So... Joseph took Jesus down with some helpers who aren't mentioned here. He had a piece of paper, a release, signed by Pontius Pilate, the governor, that he presented to the soldiers. They gently removed the nails. They gently took the body down. They wrapped it in fresh, white, pure linen. And they took it to the tomb. John's Gospel adds in the detail about Nicodemus, who brought costly spices to the tomb in honor of Jesus Christ. So much spice, in fact, that it was between 75 and 100 pounds. All of this would have absolutely shocked people back then. First of all, just a crucified man buried in a tomb? Uh, That's just unheard of. And then add to that all of the honor that is going into this at such expense, unheard of. Simply not done. Nobody does that with a crucified man. Joseph, he's so wise. (laughs) He traded all the earthly honors that he had in this life, and he had a lot. He traded them all for a dead body. As he must have thought, he was trading everything that seems to be of value in this life for Christ. Honor, prestige, money, social status, all the honor that he was used to as a member of the Sanhedrin. This is what discipleship really is, my friends. I think in the West, we tend to think of discipleship as uh, me doing an act for Jesus. Uh, Me stopping doing a sinful act and learning to do a good act. And it certainly is very important. But discipleship is actually deeper because it's out of your heart, right? Right? how you actually believe and feel about this glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Which means discipleship is a matter of honor, just as obedience to the Lord is also a matter of honor. We have this picture, don't we, that it's screw up the will, uh, tell yourself it's, it's, it's lent for the rest of your life, you got to give up something, and you know, batten down the hatches and we're going to make it happen. 
Not at all. No. Obedience and discipleship to the Lord is a matter of honor of what's in your heart. Jesus says, John 5.23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Luke 12.8, I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him before the angels of God. The born-again Christian esteems Jesus of Nazareth, who was a crucified Jew, esteems him more than all others, your wife, your daughter, your friends, your co-workers, all the people whose words and perspective on you are so important compared to Jesus, they're only a distraction. Not that they're wrong in themselves, but first must always come the one who receives eternal honor before God the Father. Jesus is worthy of your family name and your family prestige. If you come from one of those families where we always protect family, we always take care of family, you can't sustain your, that kind of life as a Christian. Christ comes first, and doing what is right in his eyes, more important than family. Um, he is to receive more honor than those in your family who came before you and whose pictures are on the wall. Maybe they're in a, in a uh, kind of an urn, on the fireplace. He is to come and have more honor than all of them put together, no matter how many generations they go back. Joseph made really smart decisions that day, full of godly faith. He weighed the cost of honoring Jesus Christ before all persons, before his co-workers, before his leaders, fellow leaders, before his family. And he had to do it. There was no other option. He truly was, as verse 50 says, a good and righteous man. And he challenges all of us. What more can you do to wisely honor Christ? And I put the word wisely there because sometimes if you get preached to and it's an emotional sermon, you just want to go out and do something to alleviate the pressure of the sermon. I don't want that. I want you to wisely honor Christ. And that means I want you to think about it, meditate upon it, evaluate what you're thinking about, how you're going to honor him for the rest of your life, or maybe it's a, it's a quick decision that needs to be made. So that you don't get into the pattern of, I felt the pressure from the Christian sermon, and so now I want to go out and just get rid of that pressure. I want you to hold on to that pressure for a little bit. And then handle it in a godly way using, say, Joseph of Arimathea as your example, as your pattern. How can I wisely honor Jesus Christ with what I have, whatever honor or lack thereof, whatever money or lack thereof, whatever. And I'm definitely not thinking that money is number one. I can tell you that. That's stuff God can raise up from the dirt. It all is about the truth Jesus' shame is over. His shame on the cross and everywhere else is finished forever, forever. And now it's time, forever and eternity, for Jesus to be honored. So, this is the first event. An honorable man 
a good man, a godly man, an important man, risked everything to honor Jesus' body. It makes me wish that, oh, could I have been there? Oh, I wish I could have been there. I could have maybe helped out in some way. How great would that be? But now I, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, now I must take that passion and use it in a wise way for where I am today and all of us as well. Now, there's a second event that's very sweet in this account as well. And it's this, that godly women risked defilement to honor Jesus' body. Godly women uh, risked defilement to honor Jesus' body. Now, this event starts with a different kind of tension than we have for Joseph of Arimathea. Join me in verse 54. Uh, Luke continues, It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Uh, The Gospels of Matthew and Mark also elaborate, saying it was already evening. In other words, it was starting to get dark. Luke's statement here that the Sabbath was beginning tells you the sun is setting. And so if these women delay in what they're doing, if they take their time to talk about every kind of angle that has to do with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, then they will break the Sabbath. And that is a serious sin among the Jews. Isn't it great not to be under Sabbatarianism? So here they are. They're under pressure to honor Jesus' body. But they risk breaking serious Jewish tradition and sort of law if they don't get back to where they live by the time sun sets. Now, all four Gospels say Jesus was crucified and buried on the day of preparation. You see it there in Luke's account on verse 54. That was the day of preparing for the Sabbath, what we call Friday. Now, many over the years have objected to Friday being the day of Jesus' crucifixion and his burial. They say Jesus was rather crucified on Wednesday. And the reason why Jesus was crucified on Wednesday is because of what Jesus says in Matthew 12.40, which is, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Count back three full days, and you land on Jesus having to have been crucified on Wednesday in order to raise on Sunday. He even predicts his own burial in that phrase by saying three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's in him predicting his burial. But among the Jews back in that day, they referred to a part of a day as one day and a part of a night as one night. It's just how they counted days back then. So three days and three nights does not necessarily constitute three 24-hour days. But that's how you and I think. That is how you and I count days. And it's actually, I believe, a superior way of counting days. Uh, But back if you lived then and you were a Jew, then the Sabbath starts at sunset, which is what, say six o'clock at night. And that's the next day at 6.05 is the next day. That's how they think, because they're trying to account for the reality that you you can, you can be awake on one day and then go to sleep and you're still on that evening of that new day. And when you wake up, you're now still on that new day. So it, it gets confusing. You know, you kind of think to yourself, well, you go to sleep, 
Midnight comes, midnight goes, you wake up, and it's the next day. So we think in terms of 24-hour days, which again, it kind of makes sense uh, with darkness and light, but God established it to be a little bit different for the Jews. Uh, so we kind of come along and we go, hey, wait, he said three days and three nights, therefore that means three days and three nights the way we think. Well, here's the reality in the text. Uh, preparation day, again, uh, you see it there in verse 54. That's day one. That's Friday. So think of it, you know, Jesus is dead. We say around three o'clock, right around three o'clock. And until about six o'clock, just go with me until the sun sets. That's one day. And then you have the entire Sabbath day, which again starts right around when it gets dark. And it lasts a whole day until it gets dark on Saturday, what we would call Saturday evening. So that's day two. And then Jesus is raised from the dead on day three. That's the morning. And so even though it's only part of the day, yet it's considered a full day. And that's how the Jews worked it, and all the ancient documents testify to that. So, in fact, you can see it if you go to chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. So it's the first day of the week. That would be what we call Sunday. So... There you go, day one, day two, day three, and except for Saturday, both of them are partial days. So, with all of that, Mark's gospel tells us that the women, in verse 55, the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed, saw the tomb and how his body was laid, was Mary Magdalene, Jesus' aunt, who is named Mary, just like his mother, and Salome. But then Mark also adds this. He says there were many other women there. And Luke adds in this verse that the, uh, these women who had come out of Galilee, which would have been a bunch of them. And all the way back in verse 49, about four verses, six verses earlier, it says that all, all of his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. So there's a large actual group of women led by some who were more central, I guess you could say, and they're all in this really sober event. Uh, Jesus has just died on the cross. And they're not going to leave each other, are they? They're gals. They're not going to leave each other. All of this is very consistent with the testimony of ancient Jewish culture. One scholar named Joachim Jeremias said... Uh, Jewish women were not even supposed to talk with men in public, not even with their husbands, and most definitely not with strangers. Alfred Edersheim, who wrote that famous book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, said at funerals, women stayed with women and men stayed with men. But all of these women are from Galilee. All of them are godly lovers of Jesus Christ, broken-hearted, staying with each other, and they decide, all of them, to break protocol. Look at verse 55. Now the women who had come out with him out of Galilee followed, saw the tomb, and how his body was laid. But time is not on their side. It's only getting darker. So they, they hustle back to their home for Passover. But before that, they have a couple of things to do. If you go back to verse 55, you'll find the word followed. They 
followed. The women who had come out with him followed. They followed Joseph of Arimathea, and he had another guy with him, uh, probably Nicodemus, and also the men that Joseph of Arimathea had him help him take the body down. But the word follow there is like the most unusual word for follow. It's this hyper-intensive word. It, it, it's written so that it's like, it's like you were saying in English vernacular, they super-duper closely followed him, followed them. Yeah, get technical here. Um, super-duper, really, really followed. In fact, so much so, it says at the end of verse 55 that they even went inside the tomb because they saw how his body was laid. That's tight. And so here they are, flaunting with protocol, possible that they're going to break the Sabbath. I love these godly ladies. They're like where no male disciple was willing to go that day of the 12 and others who were tight like that. They risked being defiled by breaking the Sabbath. They risked being defiled by touching Jesus' dead body, which was also Jewish defilement. And then Luke carefully puts it in verse 56. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath, all day, they rested according to the commandment. You see that? They're not willing, because they have careful consciences, to break the commandment that they were justly under. How they honored uh, Jesus. It's funny because uh, verse 56 is irony. Um, they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And you want to come back on Sunday morning and go, well, how'd that work out for you? Because no body is there. <laughs> Thanks a lot for the spices and perfumes, ladies. Um, Jesus is gone. He's gone. And not only is Jesus' body gone, all of the shame that Jesus endured is forever gone. That's what we're supposed to pick up by the end of verse 56. And then I want to say this too. This has been such an important part of my life. It's an important part of any Christian's life. Jesus takes care of shame. Probably the hardest thing for us who are made in the image of God to deal with, shame, even to bring it up and look at it, and even in your own head, in the privacy of your own mind, to think of it. We are unbelievably skilled at being able to just put down the shame from our past sins. And some of us, don't even need the memory of past sins. We just have a bent toward self-shame. We just see ourselves as inherently shameful. A lot of other people don't, but many of us do. Jesus takes care of shame. Everyone in this world who brings their shame of their sins to Jesus has it removed. And that's a very internal work. Uh, scriptures talk about it being in your conscience, in your heart, in every facet of your being. And every Christian has it replaced with joy and worship. God becomes big through redemption, and blessedly people become small. 
All today who try to shame Jesus, like everyone who takes his name in vain, um, that's a regular thing on a daily basis. Many of you live with that every day, with Jesus' name being a curse word. Uh, I grew up that way, and I still have occasions to be around people. Once they found out I'm a pastor, they all go, oh, oh, sorry, sorry. It's kind of funny. I try to say something slick because, you know, I'm really slick. Like, um, well, don't tell me. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know what to say in that situation. Well, you better be, you know, sorry about it before, before judgment. You know, I, what do you say when somebody takes the Lord's name in vain? And then they realize, you know, you're the Christian person. What do you, what do you, you feel like, yeah, hey, oh, that's awkward, man. Man. Everybody today who takes Jesus' name in vain and who has no fear of God, who doesn't reach out to him, to beg him to take their shame away from them, the shame of their sins, but they actually cling to it and they defend it and they say, oh, excuse my French. You know, that's, that's a real clever one, right? It's like cling wrap that's all around them, suffocating them. And all it is is some quick words but they don't know. They don't want to know. They're blocked. So, one more part to the sermon this morning. I want to go back to what I talked about at the beginning. So what was it that the Malawian men were thinking when they asked my pastor friend, if we come to your church, who will come to our burial? They were thinking of honor and shame. When a Malawian dies... It is culturally incumbent on his church friends to go to his house and sit. An undertaker prepares the body elsewhere. The man or women's friends in life walk in silently, very important, and they give a brief condolence to the family, trying to say as little as possible. Then they sit on the dirt floor with their backs up against the mud walls. Very few Malawians have such fine things as you and I have with, you know, kind of walls and products on our floors. And no one talks. No one gets on their cell phone. They just sit on the floor in mourning with their knees, you know, tucked up and held around their arms against with the wall, back against the wall. The longer they stay in the house, the more honor they offer their surviving family. And their surviving family is under no obligation whatsoever to feed them or to give them drink. Sometimes they stay until the next morning, all through the night, sitting there in grief and sorrow to show sympathy with the deceased family. And then later that day, they go to the cemetery to bury the dead person. It is expected that a man's church will do the first, go to the house. After them, the church leaders will go. Now, if it all sounds like an exercise in pride, it is not. Those who honor the dead also pledge to care for the family going forward until that family can support themselves once again. That's why it's important. That's honor. Now, because these 10 men had become Christians, and they had stopped giving to this prosperity church of greed, its leaders of that church had threatened not to come to their funerals 
if they left the church and didn't give them any more money. You see, the prosperity gospel is nothing else than religiously masked greed for other people's money. That's all it is. Whether it's down the street or whether it's in Central Africa. So the men made the transition out of that church and into a godly, righteous, biblical church that preached the gospel. And are now godly men in that church in the Longwa. So, with all that, we've used that to get in touch a little bit with what's happening in our text. Two events prove Jesus' shame is over. A rich man risked everything to honor Jesus' body, and godly women risked defilement to honor Jesus' body. Both show clearly Jesus' shame is over. Now, your body was made in the image of his. It's actually what it means when it says that you were made in the image of God. You were made in the image of God when he came down and took on human form. You really want to burn what was given to you by God in God's image into ash? And these people here in a passage, Joseph and the women, because they love Jesus and they, they all thought they were going to have to wait until the kingdom of God before they would see him again. 2,000 years, we're still waiting for him to return. Likely for most of us, for all of us, also likely, the next time we're going to see him is going to be when we die. You want to go to him having just been cremated? Can you see how it starts to just get almost, can't do it. I'm going to go see him. He's in a body now. I'm going to go to him cremated? I don't think so. You want to honor him? Well, it turned out for these folks in the text, they, they didn't have to wait all that long for their reward of seeing him because, surprise, Sunday's coming. Let's pray. And Lord, we thank you. We love you. We esteem you. And I thank you for being so great that honoring you, though I've never seen you, I've never touched you, I've never had a physical conversation with you, is what I get to do in this life. It makes everything else so worthwhile and so rich that anything I might have ever sacrificed for you has been nothing compared to what you sacrificed for me in your body. Therefore, Lord, we're very deeply convicted and convinced that you are Lord, that you are worth serving in this life. And Lord, we just want to do it wisely and well. Bless each one in here who wants to do that. And bless each one to be your full-hearted disciple. We ask in your great name for these great things. Amen.